was very macho. <laughs> it was the most macho thing I've ever seen. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duchess. I'm Chad. We're here tonight, episode 24, talking about Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear. This episode, we are talking about chapters 104 through 111. If you are reading along for us, first of all, way to go. It's incredibly patient of you. Incredibly patient. And next week, we'll be going over chapters 112 through 117. So very quickly, our spoiler policy is basically that we are going to spoil anything up to chapter 111. But nothing afterwards. But nothing afterwards. Because we ain't spoilers. Because Chad has not read these books yet, and we nope. are really enjoying all of his dubious predictions. It's uh, <laughs> one way to. Put and it. all of his uh, unspoiled reactions. So don't ruin the magic, people. It's it's fun. <laughs> it's definitely fun. So yeah, this section. Definitely one of the most mind-blowing sections. It was so much fun to watch you read this section. It really was. But before we get into that, can you give a quick recap of what we went over last week? Or Certainly. So last, okay. so last week was we came out of the Eld. We defeated the bandits, and we're stumbling. You know, we're working our way back to Severin, but in the meantime, we come across Felurian. Fucking Felorian. And Quoth decides, fuck this. I'm I'm going. I'm doing it. <laughs> He'd had as much as his 16-year-old hormones could handle laying around getting blue balls with Denna. He's going to get some of that fey booty. We're going streaking later, guys. <laughs> and so he runs off into Feyen with Felorian and narrowly escapes with his life. And then, you know, they become fast friends and buddies, and he starts to learn all about the Fey world, and we learn about the moons and some of the history of the two worlds. And that's kind of where we end, so we didn't really get any resolution last time to what happens with Felorian. we do this time. Right, so this section that we're talking about this week is where Kvothe tells us about his meeting with the Cathay, and he also learns what the full implications of that meeting are in a flash forward. He, in the flashback, reunites with his companions. Uh, he gets his first human booty, you know, <laughs> his first human score. He and Tempe then up and head off to Ademre, and Quoth wins the opportunity to be trained there. So, yes. So, sex god rock star wizard ninja. 
yeah, right. You got to add the ninja qualification <laughs> to it too, right? It's like, uh, you know, in the entertainment industry, they have the EGOT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess among fantasy heroes, you have the Sirwin. That's what I'm calling it. Sirwin? Yeah. If you're a sex god, rock star, wizard, and a ninja. There you go. Then you're a Sirwin. Makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know of any other, even fictional characters that are... No, and, and now you understand why people call Quotha Mary Sue. A little bit. It's like he, he, he becomes a sex god, and then he also is going to become a badass ninja. Like On top of it. He's All a, right. <laughs> sure. You just have to go with it. You do. Well, he's still an idiot. <laughs> a- absolutely. I mean, it's all, yeah, it absolutely is balanced by the fact that he is still an idiot. Yeah, and he doesn't win all the time, you know. I think this section, more than any other section, shows you just how much it's not going to go right for him. Right. True. And so kind of... He could add pirate and like space alien to it and shit still wouldn't go right. (laughs) He could be captain of the starship Enterprise. He could. He could be the last starfighter on top of it all. (laughs) And it wouldn't matter. Because he's still gonna he's still gonna lose in the end. And that is a really good perspective to add. Like we already know the end of his story and that gets brought up in, in a chapter. We'll, yeah. we'll unpack that a little bit more later. But yeah, we, we basically are it's interesting having the interludes. Uh, and I think that that's part of the purpose for them is that we know like the Kodan Armada wins here. There's no um at least as far as where the present time is, there's not going to be a, a brilliant triumph for this character. No. Hmm. Unless something kind of happens after the telling of Chronicle, uh, to the Chronicler, you know? Which we're all assuming is going to happen in book three. Correct, if it doesn't, yeah. it'll be a real kick in the teeth. I'm not going to lie. Well, I guess we have to see. You have to see how it ends. Right. You have to see how it ends. So do we want to get into chapter 104? Chapter 104 is called The Cathay. It is, and it's where we meet The Cathay. We do, and last week we finished podcasting, and we went upstairs, as always, lay down. I lay there, pretend to be asleep. (laughs) (laughs) One eye on your Kindle. And I just waited until you got to the part. And I got to the part. And you dropped your Kindle, and I was like, yes! It was really exciting. I wish you guys could have been there. I did literally drop it. Not really. That would be creepy if they were all there, but it yeah. it was amazing. So <laughs> so let's kind of go through step-by-step step through this chapter. So Quoth is helping Florian make this shade, this shadow cloak, yep. and Florian asks him for a piece of iron. I guess she's going to have to do something with it. Uh, to complete the shade. And one thing that, two things I thought were interesting about this part, and one is that we kind of, again, it's reiterated the importance of the sleeping mind in fey magic. Mm -hmm, Because he talks about how it was frustrating for him trying to use his wit and his trooper's memory to help Florian with the shade. Yeah, he was useless. It was useless. So that's just interesting. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that when Florian holds the iron, her eyes change color. Yes, her eyes change color, but she does not jump, yelp, scream, and act like she's been burned on fire. 
But did that remind you of anything when her eyes changed from dark to light? Uh, Quote's eyes changed. Also, Bast's, didn't Bast do the same thing when he is sneaks into Chronicler's room and Chronicler tries to ward him off with the cross and Bast is saying, I swear this by That's all right. these things. Yeah, yeah. His eyes did the exact same thing. They went from dark blue to light blue to pale blue to white. That's that's right. I just yeah. thought it was kind of interesting. Forgot about that. Forgot about that whole scene. Indeed. So anyway, Florian asks him for iron. She kind of shoes him off. It's time for the big girl's magic now. Yeah, and he yeah. goes off in a bit of a peak. Well, there's one There's one other thing that I noted before we get oh, to yeah, sure. the Cathay, which is that he starts shaving and she says, mm-hmm. you have the stink of iron on you. Get out of here. It's not that it's even touching him but just that he shaved his face. And you know what it reminds me of? What's that? It reminds me of when I was a child and my mother, grandmother, aunt would use depilatory cream. Depilatory cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nair. Dilapatory? Whatever. What is it? Dilapatory cream? Yeah. It's spelt depilatory. Is it? Yeah. Whatever. Nair. Nair. There you go. That is the foulest shit in the world. It smells real bad. It I cannot like it it's gotta be up there with like death. Like it's <laughs> it's the worst shit imaginable. It's just fucking horrid. And so when they say stink of iron, that's what I have in my mind. You know what's really funny is that I thought about when I was a kid and my mom would come home with a perm. <laughs> and I'd be like, "You're not even my mom right now because she <laughs> smells crazy." It's some funk, yeah. man. So that is funny. Yeah. So that was that, and then he decides to wander off. Right, and I thought one one line that I wrote down was, "Pride and folly they go together like tightly clasped hands," and I thought that was significant because we know that he calls his sword folly. Mm, yeah, and I think that that's probably going to be a sentiment that comes up later as well. You know, we, this theme of, of pride leading to a fall. Yeah, well, and he kind of wandered off with his pride wounded, which is sort of what led him to wander around Fan aimlessly and to wander too far. Right, and it's definitely pointedly mentioned several times that he notices that he's gone farther than he should, but he kept wandering. Yep. And then I noticed I'd gone probably farther than I should, but I kept going. Yeah, and then he wanders around, he sees this tree, and he starts to wander towards the tree, and he realizes... It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, it is, right? Uh, it definitely is. But, so he wanders off to the, towards the tree, and he, the tree's not getting any closer, and that's when he realizes, holy shit, this tree, tree is enormous. This is not like any tree at all. And... He thinks, do I need to go here? But he sees fluttering, and he decides to move forward. He follows the trail, and when the trail starts to get close to the tree, the trail takes a very wide berth around the tree. Right. But in his state of mind, he doesn't think of that being anything out of the ordinary and just cuts off across a broken land. Goes off the path. Goes off the path and heads to the tree. Right, so I thought it was interesting when he talks about the smell of the tree and how it was compelling, but not in the same way that food 
is compelling, but at the same time, it makes you want to put it in your mouth. Yeah. Out of curiosity, like an infant. That's what she said. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, Florian's La- still in this chapter. So, okay. <laughs> Say, last episode <laughs> was the what she said episode. No, you know what? Last episode was for me to go that way, so fair game. I just downed a couple of juice boxes, so I don't know what's <laughs> going to come out of my mouth. We're all hopped up on Capri Sun. <laughs> so so the smell is compelling, but it's surrounded by dead butterflies, which is a little ominous. And then a voice comes from the tree and says, I am, I see, I know. It's all creepy. Super creepy. It's it's interesting because there's there's definitely some obvious symbols in here to tell you that not all is right with the world. Right. This is a bad this is a bad mojo, bad juju coming from this tree. One of the things that I wondered when I reread it, because in the first read through, you know, when you first encounter the Cathay, you know, you, you don't have all the exposition that you get after the fact. And then after the fact, you hear Bast, you hear Felorian, you hear all about the Cathay, and you hear all these things. And so Bast talks about these flowers, that the flowers are a panacea. They mm-hmm. cure all. They, they're amazing, right? And so I thought, okay, is the Cathay in this tree, and then somehow these flowers are, are a result of it? Or is it simply that this is some magical fae tree that has these incredible flowers and this evil bastard decided to set up camp there because he knew people would not be able to resist. And that's what I think it is. That is a really good point. However, we know that the Cathay can't leave the tree. Mm, Yeah, true. Yeah. So maybe the flowers are keeping it there. But I Mm, I think your idea is probably right because what we know about the Cathay is that it is malicious, and that it does sound like something it would do. Yeah. But so Quoth approaches this tree, this voice speaks to him, uh, offers to answer a question, and when he starts to, like, take the roundabout way and talk about the Amir, it says, Ugh, just ask me about the Chandrian already. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whoa. And he's immediately floored and completely unable to rationally navigate the rest of the conversation and the they just starts spewing these these facts at him and it's done in a way that is just absolutely nasty and mean and meant to be harmful well, and what i noticed too is that it starts off just sort of snarky right but as the conversation gets along it's like sentence after sentence after sentence statement after statement it makes they become more and more just cruelty for the sake of it. Right. And this section is just so beautifully written. It just, it makes your spine crawl, it's Very doesn't well it? written, yeah. It, it just makes you so like, ugh, like this well, thing is just creepy. Yeah, you know, and it will tell him, you know, it'll tell him something. Hey, stick with the mayor, you know, he'll, he'll take you places. In between snatching butterflies out of the air. Right. You know, that's a pretty potent symbol. And then this blur of motion will just snatch it out of the air, you know, and leave its wings to flutter to the forest floor. You know, and then when Quoth asks him, why the purple ones? He says, pure spite. 
Like it's not even right. hiding the fact that it's an evil fucker. Right. So and and but it does give him some important information. It does. And so I kind of have a list of like what it's not a long list. No, but go ahead. I kind of sat down and was like, okay, so what do we learn about the Chandrian from the Cathay? Mm-hmm. I, I made a list as well, but it'll come up later. My list is, so your list is kind of what we learned. My list is what does the Cathay want Quoth to do? Mm, very interesting speculation. So you go first. So, okay, what do we learn about the Chandrian from the Cathay? Uh, first, that he should call them the seven. Uh, second, that the masters at the university might have answers for him. They know answers, but they probably won't tell him. The Order Amir may help, but they're hard to find. And he'd have to leave the four corners behind before he found someone to take him seriously. The mayor might lead him right to the Amir's door. We learn that Cinder is the one he wants. They He learns that he's been within the vicinity of Cinder, that Cinder was the the bandit. And, and that's, that's where you dropped I your dropped Kindle. Yeah. Like, yeah. But... Um, we also learned that the the Chandrian have experience hiding their signs, which I'd like to get a little more into mm-hmm. um, in just a minute. But we also learned that they did what they did, not only because they had a reason, but also because they wanted to and because they could. Mm-hmm. And then we learned a couple things about Denna as well. And some highly unnecessary facts about his parents' death. Yes. Yes, and so all of this information that that Foth has been looking for, but at the same time, it's told in a way that's so harmful that he can't even really process it. So it's interesting for me because last week we were talking about whether Felurian was evil and whether Denna's evil or Felurian's evil and kind of comparing the two of those. For me, it's interesting to have this new character come up who is indisputably evil so i think what yeah without without a doubt you know and my questions last week were more around some of the actions of felorian right rather not so much that she was evil but that some of her behaviors were evil in the way that you know a child might be innocent but burning ants with a magnifying glass is still an evil act right i just think it's interesting to look at in this book the theme of the nature of evil so you've got this sort of chaotic neutral character. Yeah, fair. Okay, Florian, who mm-hmm. is, but it's also really highlighted and, and again and again, more so in the next chapter, so I'll get more into it there, but the difference between humans and the Fae and yeah. that Florian is sort of acting according to her nature and maybe the Cathay is too, but Florian is maybe indifferent to the long-term consequences of her actions, but she's not malicious. And so that's kind of the difference. And I've been in definitely some different debates online about whether different things that Denna does or Kvothe does are evil. Mm-hmm. And I would say that they may be selfish. They may be indifferent. But there's a difference between that and what we see here in the Cathay, what we see in the Chandrian, where they are just perfectly malicious, out out intending to cause harm. Yeah. For the sole reason of causing harm, not even for really like a selfish reason, and they don't care if they cause harm, but just to cause harm for the sake of it. 
Yeah. Well, and that's what we see here. This is just a creature that seems to enjoy chaos and causing pain just just to do it. Chaotic evil right there. Cl- yeah. Absolutely. So we also learn a couple things. He throws in a couple of jabs about Denna, that the patron is beating her, and that it's like a game to him, and that she's tied to him tightly because she thinks that's all she's good for. Yeah. And, and that right there does more for me to engender sympathy toward Denna than a lot of other things that have happened in the books. We get a strong implication that things for Denna are going to get a lot worse with Master Ash in the future. Yes, and it also... Leaving scars, that he's going to start burning her, leaving scars, things of that nature. Yes, and it also gives us a window of truth into Denna's experience. Because up until now, we've been able to speculate what she's thinking, what she's feeling. Is she just a master manipulator? Is she really even having the struggles that she seems to be having? But now we kind of get this window where we know the Cathay is telling the truth. We know it from later chapters, but... Well, from this chapter, from oh, talk with Florian. Yeah, so we, we know that the Cathay only tells the truth. And so here we now learn that, yeah, Denna really is, A, being abused by her patron, and B, really does think that that's the best she can do. That's all that she deserves. Yeah, absolutely. There's one other thing in here that I recall that was implied but not stated outright, and that was that the Chandrian not only can hide their signs, but can change their appearance so they can walk out amongst the living. Because what the Cathay says is, he says, how would you imagine a guy like Cinder with the all-black eyes would be able to walk around and not be seen? The Cathay asks that, but I don't think it actually answers the question. It does not. I got it, which is why I would say, by no means a stated fact, but maybe an implication that they can change their appearance. It may be. And and it does confirm that they can change. They can hide the signs. That for sure. That's definitely confirmed. And that's interesting because when you look back at, okay, so Cinder was the bandit king. We think his sign, I believe on the pot that's painted, he is surrounded by snow. It's blue. He's blue fire. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure it's confirmed. Either way. Either way. Snow or blue flames were not present. It's true. There were There were nothing that we could have found that would have been seen as a sign. I went back and I reread that, by the way. And there was one part where, and I wish I, I can't remember the exact word, where during the fight... He says that the bandit moved like with with grace, like kind of slipped it in there. And I was looking for like the word graceful and missed it. And that's part of why I was like, no blue flame. Didn't say he moved gracefully. One of the other Chandra and not Cinder. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he de- he definitely says that he moves with unnatural grace. Unnatural grace. That's right. exactly. Yeah. Damn it. I missed that. But you were anyway, close, though. You were close. Well, I I sort of... That was my initial thought, was that it was Cinder, because it seems strange that you would introduce, in that role, you would introduce a new character that had not come up yet. You know, it seemed like it would have had to have been Cinder 
or Braden or Dagon or somebody we had already met. It, it didn't seem right that it would be sort of an unnamed Chandrian. But without with the absence of the signs, I thought, mm, it's, got, it's what it's got to be. Right. And the app, the finding out that they can hide their signs has a lot of implications for other discussions as to whether Master Ash is one of the Chandrian. Is yeah. Brayden one of the Chandrian in disguise? I mean, it kind of opens up a lot of possibilities. It does. Yeah. So do you have anything else for this chapter? So this, so, at, so after meeting with the Cathay, that's when he goes back and sees Felorian. He goes back and sees uh, Felorian, and, and she Is said— Is that this chapter? Or? Yeah, that happens in this chapter. It's right. the end of this chapter. Okay. Because she goes back to him, and, he, you know, he runs back. Right. You know, all crying and snuffly and covered with brambles, and, and she's like, what's wrong with you? And that's when he, you know, explains about the Cathay, and she looks him in the eye, and she says, she says, you, you know, you're not cracked, you're okay, if he had broken your mind, I would have been able to see it. The other thing I noted is that Quoth kind of ducks out of there pretty quick. So I feel like the Cathay was not able to really work the entirety of his spell into Quoth. It also, Florian says something about it hasn't bitten you, so... Oh, that too. Apparently yeah. it also bites. Yeah, that was quite eerie ew yeah that's horrifying yeah <laughs> like it's just really horrifying to think that so a couple of other things that i have here so when she says you know the mayor is close to the amir he doesn't realize it she said you know uh stick by the mayor he'll lead you right to their door and then sort of laughs at his own joke and says, that'll be funny later. You'll get that. Right. You know, and so to me, that seems like that's the lackless door. Yeah. And the other part of it is, you know, he says, oh, that's funny. You'll you'll laugh at that later. I have a feeling that the Cathay's sense of humor is not the same as ours. <laughs> and it's probably going to be a pretty horrific moment. So something really awful is going to happen. Yeah. There at that at that time. Another thing that I noticed was that the Cathay calls Felorian a pixie. Mhm. And we talked last time about the idea that she said she existed before the fae. And I thought is she a little bit different than the rest of the fae? Is she a pixie? You know, whereas the you know, not to say she's not of the Fey, but it seems like there are there are tons of different Fey creatures, and I just think is she maybe singular? Like, is she like something different than Bast? Well, I definitely get the impression that she is older than Bast. Well, for sure, yeah, without a doubt. And we don't really know what Bast deal is. In fact, I think in the next chapter we get sort of a display of what Bass, some more of what Bass can do. And yeah. you kind of realize that you really don't know what Bass is all about or mm -hmm. how old he might be or how powerful he may, might be. But I definitely get the impression that Felorian is kind of isolated from her own kind. I've always got the impression that she's part of the Fae and that maybe a pixie is like a either a just generic Fae term like chick or dame or broad could, could very well be 
or a subset of Faye. Well, I kind of thought of her as a subset of Faye, but I wondered if maybe maybe she's the only pixie. Well, that would certainly explain some things. Well, yeah, and that's why I thought that. She's because kind of it, a recluse. Yeah, and she's set apart from the rest of the Fae, and it answers the questions we had last time of, if she's so lonely, why is she so lonely? Where's the rest of her kind, you know? Right. So, not anything definitive by any means. Certainly not a huge deal, just something I questioned. But yeah, that's it for me for 104. So chapter 105 is called A Certain Sweetness. And that refers to, this is an interlude chapter, and Quoth is, at the end of it, mentions that telling the story has a certain sweetness to it. But that also he knows, that we all know that it's a tragedy. Yeah. So we kind of cut abruptly back into this scene, and Bass is kind of freaking out. Yeah. I and mean, he says, you never told me. That you talk to the cafe. Yeah, he kind of loses his shit. So we also sort of now we get to this background about what the Fae know about the cafe. And it brings up a really interesting theme about free will and destiny. And so basically the cafe is purely and perfectly malicious. And it also can see every possible future purely and perfectly. Yep. So it likes to, it can't leave the tree, but it likes to send people out into the world. It's put like a plague ship into a harbor. Yep. And apparently disastrous things happen to anyone who talks at the cafe. Well, according to what we read from Bast, it seems like all the major horrible shit comes from the cafe. Yes, he talks about... Jax talked to the cafe before he stole the moon and started the creation war. Yeah, so the beginning of the creation war was was started by Jax talking to the cafe. Lanray betraying Mir Tereniel. The Chandrian were created by the cafe. Yeah. Like horrible, horrible shit. And it, as soon as I heard that, I read that, I was like, that makes so much more sense because I remember going back or I remember the first time reading about Lanray and Lyra, and Lanray is held up as this hero, and then all of a sudden, on a dime, now because Lyra died, but like on a dime, he just like completely flips and goes crazy. And it makes a lot more sense now when you, th when you figure that when Lyra took ill, Lanray went to the tree to get a flower. Mm. And then he got bit. Mm. And when he came back, he was no longer Lanray. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is a bad motherfucker. Right? I had never put that together. That's very interesting. Yeah, this is he's the cause of the Chandrian, the cause of the creation war, the cause of other wars as well. You know, but the creation war, for instance... If we're to believe what Scarpy says, more people died in the battle for mere Terennial than currently exist on the earth. Like, which it's hard to know how much of that is history changing the reality of things. But either way, pretty horrible stuff, not to mention the creation of the Chandrian. So Bast is really upset when he yeah, finds he out. Is. 
that that Quoth talked to the Cathay. Uh, Quoth and Chronicler, I think, take a while to kind of be like, and Chronicler especially is like, well, doesn't seem all that. It doesn't bad. seem that bad. I mean, it's just interesting to see this this idea of do we have free will? You know, once he talks to this Cathay, does that mean his destiny is set? That nothing he chooses is going to be right? Well, and then Bast says, at one point he says, it all makes sense now. Right. You know, and, you, and, and all the unknown things that we don't know that lead to Quoth becoming Coat and being in this terrible place and being resigned to his fate, you know, Bast is now milling all that over and going, this is all because of the Cathay. A couple of other things I noted. So Chronicler doesn't, he's like, that doesn't, doesn't sound all that bad. And, and Bast. He displays some mojo. Oh my goodness. Performs some crazy ass magic. And then turns to Chronicler and says, you're an idiot for assuming you know more about things involving the Fae than I do. Like, and it is it is a pretty idiotic thing for him to say. The other thing that I thought, too, is Bass tells the story about the seed. The Sith. The Sith. Okay, the Sith. And he says, he says, well, first of all, because Quoth says, well, they're the a good intention group. And he says, the fact that you call them good intention means you don't understand the Fae. But nonetheless, they're the closest thing you're going to find. What, their main charge is to stop people from engaging the Cathay. And if they find people who have engaged with the Cathay, they kill them and leave their corpse as an example to others. And these are the, quote, good intention, Fay. And then he says, if they, if anybody who heard what the Cathay said, even secondhand, they would hunt down and kill which causes me to think, should Chronicler even be writing this shit down? Should this shit be expunged from the record? Well, obviously it wasn't. And and that, I think it's even brought up. I think Bast even says, if they knew that existed, they would kill us all for having read it. Yeah. The impression I get is that the Sith are probably less, less not very numerous. Well, and also not in... And not ubiquitous, you know. And not in uh, Tamarant either. Not in the middle of Navarre. Yeah, exactly. But I'm thinking, you know, is that going to have major implications down the road? Who knows? It sounds I mean, to me like it's not a good idea to leave it in the book. Well, it's interesting that you brought up what you did about if any of the Fae are said to work for good. Because I think that really harks back to what we've been talking about what is good? What is evil? Are the Fae good or evil? Or the, can, do the words good and evil even apply to them? I kind of see it as like all the Fae are basically neutral alignment. Okay. And or evil. So you, you don't have any like good alignment Fae. Like that yeah. doesn't even compute, you know? Well, and I think that makes sense because if you think about how the Feyen realm was created. It was created by the baddest mother shaper of them all. The baddest mother shaper. And I've got some history lessons that I went back and dug through that would lead you to believe that the baddest mother shaper of them all, probably not a good dude. Right. And this is the world he created. So maybe not shocking 
that there's no truly good fae. That's a really good point. So yeah, this... When Bass starts talking about Jack's finding, you know, of Jack's going to the Cathay and Lanray going to the Cathay, I started going back and doing some history lessons. And I, I went back and I found a number of things. Late on me. So let me um let me put on my professor hat here. Oh, that's hot. And and go back and kind of see what I can find here. So so Scap excuse me, so Scarpy at the Battle of Drosen Tor is where Lanray fought a great beast with scales of iron, breath of darkness, and after defeating the beast, quote, the enemy was set beyond the doors of stone. Right. Okay. We don't at this point know who the enemy is, but this appears to be, since it's the creation war, it appears to be between, to be between the knowers, like Salitos, okay, and the shapers. And we don't really know who the shapers are. But after Lanray goes, gets the, um, goes, deals with the Cathay and comes back crazy, he betrays Mere Terennial and binds Salitos with his name. And then Scarpy says, Salitos knew that there were only three people who could match his skill and names. Aleph, Eax, and Lyra. So... Eax is Jax. It's only one letter between the two of them. Right. It it just makes sense, you mm-hmm. know? And so that was where I was like, holy shit. Because uh, the Cathay caused Lanray to basically create right. the Chandrian. And then Eax gets locked away. And then Lanray picks up that mantle and takes that on. So the Chandrian are the Shapers. Hmm. And then after that, the Amir are created, Salitos being there as the knowers. So that so that they're still kind of in those two camps. Salitos says Lanray was considered the greatest of his generation. And then Lanray says, Imagine what unholy things a lesser man must hold within his secret heart. And the lesser man is Quoth. This is when he's been befouled and corrupted by the Cathay. That's my prediction there. However, Felurian says, quote, was not cracked. So I don't think it's as bad as all of that. We'll see. Lanray says his only hope is in oblivion. And I think that's what the the Chandrian are seeking. Oblivion to be completely erased from history. And to hasten the Alu falling nameless from the sky. The other thing I noticed is Haliax, the name Haliax is important. I think because the last three letters are E-X. So I think the name Haliax is derived from that, and I believe it is essentially another word for traitor. Hmm. That's a really good speculation. So the other part of the of the history lesson caused me to go back and start reading up on what Trappist says about Telu and Encanus. And I never picked up on this before. Ooh. 
So what we have in those early chapters is we have Trappist telling the story from the perspective of the tail and priest. And it doesn't cover quite the same era as what Scarpy's telling, but it's kind of sandwiched in between. You know, all these stories kind of fall right there in roughly the same section of the book in the in the time that he's in Tarbian, right? And I never really took that in Trappist's version, Telu is God. And he finds Encanus, and Encanus is Haliax. His face is covered in shadow. But then later in Scarpy's second story, you have where the Amir, when he's telling about the Amir being formed, and Salitos and Aleph are talking, and Salitos goes up and kneels before him and calls him God. And then so does Telu. So he's telling that story about Telu kneeling before Aleph and becoming the greatest of the Amir, and that's when the Talon priests come in and charge him with blasphemy. So Telu can't be God and also an Amir. Hence the blasphemy. Hence the blasphemy, exactly, which I never picked up on before. Right. But what I'm getting from all of this is that everything that's in the Talon path all the stories about the Talons, this is my prediction, is not at all true. It's all a bastardization, and I think it is propaganda for the Chantrian. Interesting. So I think it's Haliax wanting people to think that Haliax was in Canis and was killed and is dead and is gone from the world. Because they're seeking oblivion, and hence a big part of why they can't let any real story about their existence live. Because they want people to think that Haliax didn't exist, there was this demon named Incanus, and he's dead, and so don't worry, and it's sort of like the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing people he wasn't real. Wouldn't it be interesting if part of what is keeping Haliax bound, because we know that he's bound to not only to live forever, but to be awake forever. And not to be able to die. And not to be able to die. Yeah. I Wouldn't it be interesting if part of what was keeping him trapped was people's knowledge of him? And so... If he falls into oblivion... So part of him wanting to erase every person who's heard of him or knows about him, I don't know, that's that's pure, like, I'm just throwing shit at a wall right now, but pure speculation, but wouldn't that be interesting? Well, even if that's not the case, it's definitely what they're after, because... Right, I mean, he's definitely after destroying the world, basically. Um, yeah, he says, I would rather destroy it with salt, because the... The weeds of memory are too painful. So I think, you know, they're trying to hasten the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about it is, is that idea of the Alu falling namelessly from the sky, it it doesn't show up anywhere else in, in, in anything that we've read to this point. It's the only place it surfaces. So we really don't know what that means. Right. But that's what they're after. Right, so a lot of stuff to unpack there. Holy crap. Yeah. It's so much stuff. So I told you I had a little bit of a of a list and my list is very short, but 
but thinking back about how the Cathay wants to set people off like a plague ship into the harbor. Right, so what do you think he wants Quoth to do? So there appears to be, on the basis of what he's told us, there appears to be four things that the Cathay want from Quoth. First, they want him to go to Ademre. Second, they want him to go back to the mayor and find the Doors of Stone. I think he's going to release Eax from the Doors of Stone. Mm. I think that's what's going to happen. Three, they want him to attempt to free Denna from Master Ash. Or the Cathay, not them, the Cathay. Mm-hmm. And lastly, the Cathay want him to kill Cinder or try to kill Cinder. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that they want Quoth to do. And pretty much as soon as Quoth leaves Feyen, as soon as he gets the first opportunity to do the first thing, which is to go to Ademre, he takes it. And directly thinks about the Cathay's words. And thinks about it. While he goes. Absolutely. I think those are really good speculations. Oh, my God. <laughs> are you ready to move on? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So chapter 106 is called Returning. And basically, Quoth is sleeping off a, a wicked prophecy hangover. And uh, Florian is sort of scampering around him and trying to comfort him, but she doesn't know how. And I, what's interesting to me in this chapter is this glimpse into Florian's nature where he's... Quoth is completely desolate. He's mentally just crushed, and he basically just spends three weeks like crying and eating ice cream and watching chick flicks, <laughs> you know. And um, you know, at one point he says, "Valorian looks so concerned. I expected her to reach out and murmur gently or stroke my hair, and she didn't do that. She just kind of was like, Ugh. you know." We all know someone who's really awkward at comforting people. Yeah. <laughs> I just picture Florian like patting him like really awkwardly on the head and being like, they're there. Yeah. <laughs> this is really uncomfortable for me. <laughs> Could you go mope somewhere else, please? <laughs> so again, it's we're highlighting the difference between the Fae and humans and how inhuman she is, but she really is touched. And at one point, I think she goes off and cries and she's bringing him all these gifts. And which is where, again, you can't call her evil because if she was really that callous, she would have sent him on his way, you know, and she doesn't. And she stays with him and stays by his side through what seems to be like at a minimum several days of him just being a crying, blubbering mess. And she stays by his side and wants to comfort him, but just doesn't know how. Right. So I just think it's so interesting to go back to this. What is the nature of evil? It's not selfishness. It's not even disregard for what the consequences of your actions are. It's more that malicious intent. If you set a plague ship and send it into the harbor, that's some evil shit. And so at the end of this chapter, the Cathay's words finally goad him, goad the plague ship out into the world. He's leaving. He says goodbye to Florian and um, heads back to the Penny's Worth. Yeah. Now I have a couple. I have a couple things here yeah. actually. So in chapter one hundred six, this is where he leaves the Fay and walks into 
the quote real world, for lack of a better word, right? Right. Uh, so when he does, when he goes through a graystone, which, by the way, final confirmation that graystones are doorways into the Fae. Yes. I mean, we've been suspecting that, but now we have confirmation. So yay me, one point. <laughs> All right. Um, he says he feels a subtle change in the air. And this phrase, subtle change or subtle tension, has only come up a couple of other times. And the descriptions are very similar, although the circumstances are very different. And it caused me to have a little bit of harebrained speculation. So the subtle change or subtle tension in the air first shows up in the chapter Hope when Haliax looks to the sky and the Chandrian all freak out and look to the sky and they get ready to, to leave. You know, quote says they look up into the air. He said he had a feeling of being watched and then there was a subtle tension in the air before they left. The other time it comes up, the same phrase was in the last section when they were, when Felurian and Quoth were going into the dark forest and Felurian knocked him down and that thing, you know, that they couldn't see that Quoth felt was hovering in the air above them comes Felurian's sucks his breath out, blows her breath into his lungs, and he says there was a subtle change in the air. And then now here at the the gates, kind of in and out of the fey, is the subtle change in the air. So it's only come up a couple of times. It might be entirely coincidental. I do, it did cause me to think, though, and to speculate that is that thing that was hovering above them in the air in the Feyen realm? Was it one of the Amir? It's an interesting speculation because what Quoth says is that I, th- I feel like the way he explains it is the whole time he was in Fey, there was a feeling of someone sleeping all around him. Yeah, he As does if talk about that. The yeah. world itself is sleeping. And when he leaves the Fey, all of a sudden that's gone. Yeah. He feels it's back in the mortal. He doesn't have that. So you just, you don't know about the fan realm. Is the entire realm somehow conscious? Is this like a sentient world? And we don't know because we know that it's not, this is not a world that naturally evolved. It was made by the baddest mother shaper of them all. Right. You know? Well, and it, it clearly also does not obey the rules of what we would consider normal physics. Right. Nor does it like normal sympathy. Yeah. And, well, and it's that, that sympathy caused that thing to appear. Right. You know, and it could, it could have nothing to do with any of it. But it just, the fact that that, only, that phrase pops up only in some of these sort of significant situations, you know, may or may not mean anything. So anyway, that, that's all I had for 106. Chapter 107 is called Fire. And here's where the story gets boring. What? Because like Quoth, the real world is not nearly as cool as the world of the Fae. (laughs) It's interesting because this section, I think, probably at least the first read through was, I don't want to say the hardest for me because I, I, I love this book to pieces every time I read it. But especially on the first read through, when we get into a Demre, 
I just kind of was like, uh, okay, what? Let's. Well, it's def it, it's definitely not as exciting as what we just read, right? Like there, there's no question about that. But there's a few things in chapter 107 that I I, I did like. Well, and you know, it's sort of I mean, everything's got to have lulls and ebbs and flows. You know, just because it's less exciting than the chapter about the Cathay doesn't mean it's not still good or enjoyable. It's just, you know, the Cathay chapter is like, oh my God, mind-blowing. But that doesn't mean that these chapters aren't also really good. Well, and for me, with subsequent read-throughs, I pick up more and more on some of the things that are continuously building through these chapters in Mm. really subtle ways. So, and what I'm seeing as he moves into a Demre, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit but this concept and his skill with a sleeping mind and it's not really put out there blatantly but we see it grow as he's in Thay and he's learning to work with the shade and he doesn't really talk a whole lot or use the phrase sleeping mind but he talks about how his waking mind is no good he has to learn to think a different way and then he comes back, he starts traveling with Tempe, and he has to learn how to put his mind into the spinning leaf. Yeah, but that's like two to three chapters from now. Like I said, I'm jumping forward a little no, bit. No problem. However, my point is, when I started to see this continuous thread, and so so I am going to jump ahead a little bit, but I started to see this continuous thread. Okay, so he's in Faye, he's learning to think this different way, and then it continues as he's learning to talk about the Lathani and put his mind into this spinning leaf. So this isn't just these disjointed adventures that don't really have anything to do with each other. It's building toward him being able to have some sort of greater ability. No, and I, I agree with you, by the way. I, I thought I thought the same thing. Well, I did not think that the first time through. Yeah. And I think that's why I didn't like it as much because I was like, what, now we're going here? What are we doing over here? Like, just so he can check the box to become a ninja? Like... You know, it didn't interest me as much. And um, it didn't help that for me, the ADEM remind me of the Aeel in the Wheel of Time. And that's my least favorite part of the Wheel of Time books. Yeah. And it's hard for me to not, even today, like get them muddled in my brain a little bit. Like when I picture Hert, I'm picturing, you know, a desert town with these like sand domes or whatever, which I know is not necessarily what is even described in this book. No. But um, for me, they just get muddled and it's just because they're both, you know, like a Fremen type race and they both start with A. But let's, (laughs) jumping way ahead, let's go back to chapter 107. So chapter 107 is when they arrive at the Penny, or he arrives at the Pennysworth Inn and he walks into the inn to find out only a day or two has passed. Three days. Three days has the passed. three days that he said would pass. So three days have passed, and his friends are telling a crowd in the Pennysworth Inn all about what happened to him. Of course, he walks in, plays the hero, and then gets to bed Losi. With seven words. Seven I liked words, yeah. I like that he had seven words for her, and it was perfect. It did, They were yeah. perfect words for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of things that stuck out to me and that we we get to come back. We get to reconnect with his old traveling companions. We see that Hespi and Dayton did finally hook up. Oh, they were hooking up in the woods. And I'm she did. You. She did. Well, they're outwardly hook up. Okay. <laughs> I need to beat that dead horse. 
But um, she did break his arm, and they've they've gotten together now. I mean, that's what you have to do to let to let a guy know you like him. You got to throw him down and break his arm. Exactly. Like I always tell our girls. <laughs> Throw him down on the ground, sit on his back, <laughs> break his elbow. Then he'll know you love him. <laughs> so we come back. He reconnects. He gets to put on a show and tell about his tell his story. I thought it was interesting how he goes in and it was so strange for him to be around humans and wear clothes. Mm-hmm. And he laughs a laugh that was no human laugh. And that's a phrase that we've seen several times. Yeah, absolutely. Just to highlight again, the difference between humans and the Fae. Well, and he, you know, he, he, he's like, and they were eating with knives and forks and here's this girl with a beautiful mouth for kissing. And I just, I found myself wanting to lean forward and, and, and do that before I realized that she was sitting next to her husband and, oh yeah, I guess that matters here. You know, so he really does take a little time to have to adjust back to what the regular world is like. Right. And so we go, he's thrown back into this regular morality and we get some kind of interesting commentary on that. First in that when he's telling his stories, he doesn't exactly tell the truth. And he has no, no qualms about not telling the truth. And in fact, at one point he says, lies are simpler and most of the time they make better sense. So there's no qualms there. There's the oddity of the social norms, especially surrounding sexuality, is very profound to him. Um, he goes on, and and I love the last line of this chapter because he's talking about Losi, he's talking about women and each woman suddenly he knows so much about women sudden each woman is longing to have her own music played and um oh oh fabio (laughs) and he and but then he goes i can't believe it's not butter (laughs) but sometimes you want butter sometimes and sometimes margarine is the better choice uh is it ever sometimes is it you want to be dirty Listen, I don't always want to listen to a sympathy, a symphony. Sometimes I want to hear rancid played really loud. <laughs> it's true. And sometimes I want rancid butter, oh. and I'm going to have margarine. I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> Fabio did do a can't believe it's not butter commercial, right? I don't know. Otherwise, that weak-ass joke is even less... We can pretend he did. I've, I'll be honest. I was never that into Fabio. Well, how could you be? He's not even human. Does that thing even look human? <laughs> you know how I feel about really muscly guys with shaved chests, okay? Yeah. It freaks me out. <laughs> because it just reminds me of a dolphin. It well, gives me the willies. It just does. No worries here. Especially when they have those big, what are those? Lats. The lats that's like... Like they could fly away like they're a flying squirrel. They just flap those suckers. I mean, I'm serious. It freaks looks, me out. It's like a stingray. We are way off topic. That's what, that's what happens when you compare, quote, the Fabio. So anyway. He's just a love machine. Quote gets some booty. He's into it. He's into Losi, but um, but he leaves her, and that's okay because some people just don't understand music or love or me. Yeah, 
So it's interesting. It's there's a lot of commentary, especially I think toward the end of the book on social mores, sexual mores, what we consider civilized in society, and what does that even make sense? What are the implications of our social mores and yeah, how different cultures can misunderstand each other and miscommunicate? Yeah, absolutely. and how really like what we consider civilized is a lot more subjective than we like to think it is. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's that's an interesting theme that I think is going to come up a lot as he as we get into Edemray, which begins to happen in I believe chapter one hundred and eight, which is called Quick. So in one in chapter one hundred and eight, they talk about spending three days at the Penny, and then three days on the road. They run into a troop of performers. And then the last part of the chapter is they stop at an inn and Quoth is practicing Catan with Tempe when four Adem warriors wander upon the scene and we learn that Tempe is in trouble for teaching Quoth. He is. And Quoth selflessly offers to go back with him. Thinking on what the Cathay said. Well, that's that was... That was sarcastic. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't selfless at all. Yeah, okay. Yeah, not at all. Okay. I'm like... He's like, oh, you're in trouble. Oh, I kind of wanted to go to, to... Hey, man. Would it help you if would I went... Would it help you if I went... <laughs> if I went to where this evil tree-dwelling monster that knows the future told me I should go? <laughs> right. But I think in the next chapter, he d- he does again talk about like, well, you know, I, it was the right thing to do. I couldn't just let him go and be in trouble and stuff. Well, that that is what makes it sort of conflicting is that it 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 it, it is the right thing to do. You know, and it seems like as we get into chapters later that it, it did make a difference for Tempe. Right. So the chapter is called Quick, too. And I thought that was interesting because that is the the insult that is given to him by one of the mercenaries. Oh, that's right. I hadn't, because I never think about it, hadn't hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so it was, I found that particular interaction strange because, so all the ADM mercenaries, they're there talking, and we're kind of, we're not following this in chronological order, but that's okay. All the uh, mercenaries are there talking, and Quoth decides to walk up to them. And I'm thinking, well, why would you? But okay, because um, they clearly don't want you to be there. But anyway, he goes up there and he talks to him. And one of the uh, mercenaries puts what turned out to be her hand out to kind of push him back to say, back off. And his instinct is to attack. Like, I just found that to be a little bit strange. And he sort of explains it away as like, I, f- I found myself following the steps of the Catan. Like, not that it was a conscious decision, but... I don't know. It just seems strange to me. Well, I think I don't think she just put her hand up. I think she shoved him. Yeah, yeah. I, it still seems strange to me. If someone pushed you in that context, yeah, I don't think I would do that. Well, what he says is he performs break lion, which is a breaking, which is a um, a way of escaping from a hold. Yeah, yeah. So she reached out and shoved him, and he kind of. Twisted her, tried to twist her, swat twist her, her arm wrist. away. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't see it as him being aggressive or attacking, but sort of reacting to her putting her hands on him. Mm. That's the way I saw it. Yeah, 
either way, um, either way, this chick does not like him. No. You know, and she is deliberately insulting to him. So, and I wonder if that's part of what spurs him to want to go and try to help Tempe with his problem as well. Goodness knows the man don't like bullies. And so we need to back up for a minute before we move on out of this chapter because we need to talk about the poem that we hear when he has the meetup with the, not with the an Adam Aru troop, the- but a, a troop of performers they meet and one of the children of the troop sings a song to him about the lackless door. And I think it's probably one of those very significant songs. Yeah, I, I wrote this down as well. So it's seven... Seven things that have to happen before. Let me see. Seven, seven things, things stand before the, the entrance la- to the lackless door. The lackless door. Yeah. So we got another list here. I only I, there was only one of them that I thought thought was significant. It, it was one of those things to me where it's like, okay, I put a little bookmark on that in the Kindle. Okay, let's come back to this because I'm I'm sure they're all going to be important and they're all going to reference specific things. But I don't know what most of them are right now, so I'm going to put a pin in it and come back to it later. But there was one line that stood out to me. Which one was that for you? To me, the line that stood out was, one, a son who brings the blood. Yeah. Which is clearly quoth. I think so. So we've got a ring unworn, a word forsworn, a time that must be right, a candle without light, a son who brings the blood, door that holds the flood a thing tight held in keeping and that which comes with sleeping so i don't think that those are just throwaway rhymes i think they're no. all going to be yeah, significant I, at some point i don't think they are either but i don't know like i can't even begin to to think about what they reference other than that line Right, and I I agree with you that I think that um, the son who brings the blood is is quoth. Yeah, clearly. there's been speculation in the realm <laughs> that, on the on the interwebs on the interwebs that, and I can't remember exactly where I've I've heard it a couple of different places that quoth is not a lackless. A lackless. No. That now go with me. Now this is not my speculation because I actually agree with you, but there is speculation that his mother was not Natalia Lackless. That it's not spoilery now, is it? No, it's not. This is not spoilery. This okay. is like some just someone else's tinfoil hat. Mm-hmm. That Denna is Natalia Lackless, and that she is actually the Lackless heir, and the the ring is whatever her sign of being a Lackless. So. That for me, this song is part of why I die, I kind of don't hold with that theory because I do think that the lackless heir is a son, and I think that it's quoth. Seems like there's a huge age mismatch there too. But may, but uh, may, I mean, I haven't really given that any real credible thought to see if it holds weight on the surface. It sounds, it doesn't sound realistic to me. But you know. Should give all those theories. People are bored, Chad. <laughs> they're they're waiting for a book. <laughs> if you don't give them a book, they're going to start making up their own shit. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that 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 is wrong. I'd have to spend some time think giving it its due thought. Right. But as of right now, I'm going to say no way. <laughs> Natalia Lackless <laughs> is Lorian, 
who is Quoth's mom. I-, I agree with you. Okay, so chapter 109 is called Barbarians and Mad Men, where we learn about the ADEM, and Quoth goes to Lathani boot camp. Yeah, he does. Basically. And this is where he learns the spinning leaf. Right. And also where he runs his ass off. Yes, he does. So I did a little I did a little quick analysis of what they like a day in the life of on the trail with Tempe is like. And it sucks, dude. Yeah, and it's traveling depending on their speed, it's traveling anywhere from thirty six miles to fifty miles per day. Well, I think he says in the next chapter that they ran 300 miles in 15 days. Well, the first couple of days were they were running a lot more than they ran later. I'd have to reread it again. I I it's took not, it as It's not really that important. Um my point being that's like running more than a marathon every single day before you even consider the all the Catan. That's some serious shit. That's moving. But that's not really what's important here. What's important to me in the chapter is the spinning leaf. And is that what it's called? Do I? Yeah, the spinning leaf. And what I find humorous in typical Quoth fashion is Quoth basically is like, eh, it was completely impractical. <laughs> completely useless. So useless. Not at all like the heart of stone, which tells me that it's going to be critical to him being able to open up his sleeping mind to be able to actually controlling the name of the wind. Right. Rather than just, you know, when he absolutely has to save his own ass. <laughs> so. So we feel like we've made some progress with both in kind of his revelation that El- that Elodin is, uh, has been teaching him all along to his progress to being able to somewhat do some magic in the fey and now he's got this spinning leaf mind thing going on you think oh that's has to do with the sleeping mind they'll go with that man and he's like eh yeah you know <laughs> whatever habits I mean, it's, die hard it's fine for answering all these stupid questions but <laughs> i'm sure these adam aren't these world famous mercenaries don't actually know anything they I just mean, answer stupid questions i mean just like a few chapters ago when i said the lothani was child childhood you know myths and would wasn't actually real everybody knew it wasn't real <laughs> so the other thing that's to me is significant is this chapter is titled barbarians and madmen and mm, mm-hmm. that comes from at the end tempe and both are talking about whether it's of the lathani to enjoy a fight and tempe says that only barbarians and madmen enjoy the fight so that's an interesting statement coming from someone from a warrior culture. Yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely. And then chapter 110? is called Beauty and Branch. So th- at the beginning of this chapter, he talks about that they ran 300 miles in 15 days, and they finally get to Ademre. Yeah, and the town of Hert. 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 Which is obviously heart, just spelled a little funny. But what? That's kind of lazy, P. Roth. <laughs> Whatever. So how do you feel? I, I have mean, one line about this chapter. Do it. Quoth fights an old lady. <laughs> That's it. In a in a yellow hat, and I. Yeah, I love the hat. I love that visual. Me too. It's, Me too. And I love the character of Shane. Um, I think it's. I think she's magnificent. What? What I. 
So in my in my mind, Shane is cast as Mushmouth from Fat Albert. Why? What is wrong with you? Because Mushmouth had the yellow hat that the came hat, down over his hat. That's it. That's the only like not the fact that she's female or like an old well, no, lady well, or you know nothing about her description of her. It's just you're just just the hat. You got a problem with Mushmouth? <laughs> Don't have a problem with Mushmouth. What are you saying about Mushmouth? I don't just saying that your brain is very weird. I like that's my all I'm we- saying. I like my weird brain. <laughs> and people need to pay more attention to Fout Albert. It was a <laughs> a really good show. Now, just because the creator turned out to be a serial rapist doesn't remove the value <sighs> of Fat Albert. Don't blame on Fat Albert shit that Bill Cosby did. That's what I'm saying. It's just my head is just shaking back and forth. I don't <laughs> I don't know I don't know where to go from here. All I'm saying is I want some pudding pops. And it's just, bullshit that just, that stuff has been taken stop. out of the market. Stop that right now. Just <laughs> Have you had a jello pudding pop? This is not this is not going anywhere. It's real productive. fucking good. <laughs> you guys, he's I'm making it worse. I know. I can't stop myself. What were we talking about? I think we're talking about a book. I was I was talking about a book at some point. I'm just saying they need to bring Jello Puddin' Pops back. Don't talk shit about Mushmouth. This is the best episode we've ever had. I don't even know how to reel it back in. I, I really don't. <laughs> You've lost control I've, of the podcast. I've lost control of this podcast. Uh, uh, you went full fat Albert and I'm I'm I, I'm done. <laughs> how many non sequiturs do you have to stream together before you just completely lose your mind? <laughs> I think it depends on how many juice boxes I've had. <laughs> Holy shit. So listen, Liz, would you keep it together? Let's, <laughs> let's get this shit on track. So one thing I did want to ask you about, and I knew that the ADEM are not based on the AAL from Wheel of Time um, because Patrick Rothfuss has said in interviews that he actually hasn't read Wheel yeah, of yeah, Time. Yeah, yeah. So, but however, you know, there's obviously these two very Fremen-like I mean, but cultures. S- it's a very archetypal thing. All the thing. war, yeah, exactly. But all I the also, at the same time, want to ask, like, how do they compare for you? Um, to the Aiel? Yeah. Well, so far, I would say, I mean, there really are a lot of similarities, particularly in the tone of them. Um, you know, I like that both of them are cultures where the women play a really critical role, mm-hmm. you know, and particularly even in sort of a fighting fashion. I be, I think at this point I'm feeling like the whole women's strength because women are warriors is probably a little played out as a way of making a strong female character. You know, I, I like the way George R. R. Martin does it better, but it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think the Edemic culture so far I find a little more interesting than the Aiel, but only slightly so. We're still kind of at the beginning, whereas I've spent many, many, many books reading about the Aiel. 
And the ADEM don't have rat tails. So, <laughs> I mean, that's just what killed the, the AO for me. All I was thinking about was their rat tails. And like, just one, I just, why did they, I don't know. <sighs> why? Yeah, I mean, the whole warrior culture thing is a very common trope. And, and again, not not that it's a negative because we like the Fremen. You know, we like some of those Oh, the things. Fremen are badass. I'm oh, down yeah. with the Fremen for sure. But, um, you know, so it's not necessarily, that's not a negative thing. I still feel like I don't know enough about them yet. That is one of the issues with Patrick Rothfuss writing because you don't get any sort of unnecessary exposition. You don't get as much detail and you can spend a lot of time before you really feel like you get to know what's going on with a culture. So I don't know. Time will tell. That's true. And I think at this point in the book, all that we really know about the ADEM is, well, that they're a very collectivist culture. You know, they're not, they're not inv- individualistic. You know, for Tempe, the idea of being exiled was worse than death. So they really value their community. And obviously their communication style is very different. And they're a very introspective culture. So, and we also learn that there's a difference between a goat herd and say a martial arts student or a mercenary. There are different strata to this society as well. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you know, people who are tending sheep aren't debating philosophy and practicing martial arts as well. Yeah. the I mean, this section also still sort of highlights where the communication style is problematic, you know, because when we have the scene, is it in this chapter where we have the scene where Cheyenne kind of takes him back inside of the... That's the next chapter. That's the next chapter. Okay. So, but they all sort of bleed together to me. Right. Um, but it, it does highlight to me that there are some problems with it, but it's not important enough that I'm going to really make a stink about it. Right. Well, and I, I love the character of Shane. I love that we we get to see what just practicing this Lothani does for a person. Because Shane doesn't have any supernatural skills. No. But he, she's described as moving perfectly. Never taking three steps when two was needed. Never, never wasting her energy everywhere. Yeah. And it seems that her strength is in wisdom. Mm-hmm. but that she's also an incredibly skilled fighter. And so that's just very interesting to get to see, well, A, to get to see an old lady kick butt. Yeah, the I mean, one of the things I do appreciate about it from a warrior culture is if I compare this to the Aiel, and I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe, I've, maybe I'm pushing it out of my memory, but like the Aiel and Wheel of Time are like supposed to be super badass, you know, just like, just like the Adim, you know, and, you know, and and five regular warriors equals one IL warrior. But it never really quite says why. I mean, except that they, like, you know, grew up in a badass desert and had to be badasses to live, basically. Yeah, that's pretty much it, you know. Whereas you can kind of see with the ADEM why they are so much more badass, you know. They're the only ones who really have a this codified, almost scientific, you know, philosophical sort of martial art to them that you don't see in any of the other cultures in the surrounding area. 
Right. I mean, you have with the ale their code of honor. Yeah. You know, which is similar to that part is very similar. The Lafani Mm -hmm. as well. I don't know. It's very interesting that, you know, you've got this sort of archetype that's that comes up over and over. It it does. I mean, if you if you think about it though, I don't I think that's because we have those sort of examples in our own real world. You know, and so that's where people draw upon them. You know, they draw upon them from what other cultures have sort of imagined of cultures like the Spartans, of cultures like the the Native Americans with, you know, their, um, you know, the idea of just being able to touch somebody being the same as being able to kill them. I can't remember the name for that all of a sudden. But, um, you know, in different Asian cultures and, you know, the, the, the monks who are able to do these miraculous things with their bodies, you know, and that would normally hurt or harm or kill a person, you know, that they're able to lean against spears and be underneath of hundreds of pounds of stone without being crushed and all these crazy things. So we have those examples in our real world, and I think that's why you end up seeing them pulled up over and over and over again in these sort of fantasy worlds because it's how we, you know, fantasy is how we sort of make sense of kind of our own world by sort of abstracting these things, you know, and putting them in a different kind of context. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's that's why I think it's so ubiquitous. So chapter 111 is called A Liar and a Thief. And basically that is what Quoth is accused of being and is both of those things. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so we start this chapter. So we didn't really kind of break down what happened in the last chapter, but Tempe and Quoth get to Hert. Tempe has, goes into this building and is like, dude, you just got to stay out here and keep your barbarian hands to yourself for a little bit. <laughs> and he begins a, a conversation with an old woman. They're talking about what makes something beautiful and they they wander off and he eventually realizes that this is Shane and obviously this is someone who's very important in the Adem society. Um, she was Tempe's teacher and she's sort of testing him. And in this chapter, Shane brings him back, takes him into a room, basically has a little trial where Tempe and this other mercenary who shoved him two chapters mm-hmm. ago, Carceret is his name. And can we think of a more evil sounding name? Let's just try for a second. That's no, pretty. It's an evil sounding name, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It just sounds like a combination between like a scorpion and and an illness and like a jail or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's like that's a that's a really good it's evil like sounding Maleficent's name. sister. Like, she is not going to turn out to be a good guy with a heart that like a... Doesn't sound like no. it. Carceret. So anyway, Carceret does not like Quoth. She is no. anti-Quoth being around anymore. Tempe is obviously on the side of Quoth. And they have an interview, which I found interesting because Quoth has to put his mind into spinning leaf, sort of answer these questions about the Lathani. And the question that floors everyone, the answer that floors everyone, that kind of turns the tide in his favor is, he's asked, how do you follow the Lathani? And he says, how do you follow the moon? Boom, the moon comes up. And he's in the spinning leaf and he's using his sleeping mind and it's another example of when he didn't really think about something, it ended up being the best thing he could say or do. 
Right. And so the moon is always significant. That too. Yeah. When so, that comes up, and I always put a pin in that, but... Confluence of a lot of different things we've seen. Right. And I... I just love that about this book. So anyway, he says that and everyone's like, oh, he's so, wow, that was really clever. And what ends up happening is that they decide that he can stay or Shane decides that he can stay, but that he's going to be given to the hammer. Given to the hammer. That doesn't sound ominous at all. Not at all. Because, you know, hammers are known for being gentle. Exactly. So. And Tempe's like, ooh. Oh, damn. Really? <laughs> Dang, bro. So this is where I talked about the communication thing being a little weird. Because Carceret not being happy with the decision kind of almost behind her back makes some very nasty gestures about Quoth. It's sort of like. This is where the hand, the whole hand gesture thing just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because why wouldn't like why would you feel compelled it's like talking about what you're thinking while playing chess with somebody like you wouldn't do that well if i do you know so my impression it, of the scene is that Carceret wants him to see that she is miming disgust and you're the worst and it's not trying to be behind his back but it's when shane's back is turned she lets him see a couple of rude gestures and then this is one of my favorite parts because then he says that he gave her a gesture of his own that even though it wasn't an (laughs) endemic gesture she gathered what he meant she got the impression and i can just see that playing out you know that's pretty humorous to me yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a little more sense than the way I kind of envisioned it. Okay, that makes more sense, yeah. And I just think the whole Ademic culture, and as we, we get into it and we're going to learn more about them, I think it's a deliberate commentary on cultural differences and how we see another culture and we go, ugh, they're barbarians. They don't do this. They don't, they're so weird. They don't do that. But that's just because we don't understand what's normal for them. Yeah, and every every barbarian culture calls the people who live on the other side of the river barbarians. Right. You know, the Visigoths were like, oh my God, the pagans, they're terrible. Like, exactly. You know. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I, I get that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it because I feel like it's just one of those things that, has, that somebody has to say, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time dwelling on it. What happens in this warrior culture when your hand gets cut off? They're such good warriors that their hands never get cut off, Chad. Obs. Totes obs. <laughs> well, you're not supposed to be out there hacking at the leaves. Exactly. That's not going to get you anywhere. You got to exactly. go for the branch. So. so, okay, whatever. Again, not not that important. <laughs> so, yeah, going to be given to the hammer, and he's like, I probably should have been... Uh, Worried about that, but no, I slept like a baby. I was too freaking exhausted to care. So we find out next time what happens. Yes, we do. So you want to give me any predictions this week or? I have predictions. All right, so are you opening another juice box? Shh. Listen. This is between me and the juice box. I mean, it's not for me to tell you what to do. I'm just saying, you know, perhaps perhaps you... Perhaps you've had one too many. Don't make me snarf Capri Sun. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, so predictions. So a couple of these I've already hit on, but I think the story of the Talon Church, from what you hear inside the Talon store, uh, excuse me, inside the Talon Church, is a lie, and I think that's a lie that's you know propaganda that's put been put out there by the Chandrian. All right. There are some problems with that theory. Uh, one, you know, Talu was supposed to be the greatest of the Amir. Uh, it could also be that, you know, Talu got a little too big for his britches and wanted to equate himself to Aleph. So that's another possibility. Um, but I'm going to stick with its Chandrian propaganda for now because that's whose purposes it seems to serve the most. Plus, as we've said, Talu's a dick. And the tail and priest we've met, with the exception of Trappist, have all been complete fucking putzes. Right. So that's what I'm going with for now. So I also say Felurian, she's not like the other Fae. Oh, God. She's a pixie. <sighs> she's not like the other Fae. She's not like the other Fae. She wears square glasses. Say asphalt again. And converse. Asphalt. All right. So Eax is Jax, and he's the baddest mother shaper. Haliax means traitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, his goal is oblivion and bringing the Alu from the sky. So those are those are my predictions. Those are solid predictions. Well done. We'll see what happens. How many more chapters do we have left in this book? I have no idea. Not that many, though. We're we're coming up to the end. We're definitely coming up to the end. So one of the things in the Bass chapter that I noted and I wrote in my notes and we didn't quite get to it, but we probably should have spent more time talking about this, but Bass says that anytime the Cathay tree shows up in any of their plays, you know it's going to be a tragedy. Oh, yeah. I meant to bring that up. I'm glad uh, you did. I figured you would have, yeah. And Quote says, who are we kidding? We know how this ends, you know? And that was an incredibly sad moment. Right. And then he, I think he continues and Chronicler says, hey, if you're still alive, it's not the end of your story. And Quoth looks at them both and says, oh, you're both so, so young. young. And even though we know he's younger than both of them. Right. But is he? And there's a lot of speculation as to how old he actually is. Or how much but, time has he spent in the Fae right. and all that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is... Um, so that was a very, very sad part. But while we were going through that and we were talking about all the stuff with the Cathay and all that, it just caused me to think, and I guess we'll lump this in with the predictions, that this book, The Wise Man's Fear, somewhere in the next 20 to 30 chapters, however many we have left, is going to end tragically. Like... The last one sort of ended with him calling the name of the wind and fighting a dragon, and it was like, oh, whatever. You know, and it was sort of a non-ending sort of ending character moment, but not really a lot from a plot. I am predicting that we're going to have something really horrific happen at the end of this book. It's not going to be like the end of the name of the wind. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what that is per se, Um I sort of have it in my mind that he is going to somehow get captured and imprisoned completely. So you're saying it's going to go like Empire Strikes Back ending. Yeah. Yeah. Very dark. Like this particular 
book is going to end very dark. All right. So would you like to hear some interactions from our listeners? Heck yeah. All right. Well, we have some. Okay. So we have James C., who on Twitter is at Han, or excuse me, Han Stitched First. Nice. Because it's a knitter. Oh, sweet. Right? So listen to your podcast, and I just have to say thank you for your Wheel of Time opinions. So thank you to James C. And then we also have Jason Michael Cox, who said, who by the way, who is at jbird underscore 531, who said, super excited. I'm um, sorry, we were talking about episode 23. Said, super excited for this. I'm ready for you guys to break it down. I'm not that far in, but I want a breakdown of George R. R. Martin versus Rothfuss sex scenes. <laughs> and, and I was like, whoa, we, we touched on it, but we didn't get very deep into it. And you could kind of break that down a little more if you wanted really to. It's really hard to compare the two. Rothfuss is very PG-13. Yeah. You know, and um, Martin is is not. No. A lot less PG-13. Um, Martin's also highly matter-of-fact, where Rothfuss is a little bit more flowery. Well, and they're both very indicative of their worlds. True. Agreed. Martin's world is a lot more gritty. It's dark. It's... More grounded in reality. Absolutely. Uh, Rothfuss's prose is more elaborate. Uh, He talks about more kind of academic themes. He gets more into the nature of humanity. His world is more fantastic. It's not nearly as dark. It's not nearly as dark. It's it's hard to compare the two. Yeah. I I wish I had more time because it would be a great write-up sort of blog post. I don't have time to to do that kind of research to really get into it right now, but it would be a good topic for somebody to do. Maybe we'll be able to do it later. If you're asking me like which one would I, if I had to reenact one or the other, like pick? Oh, I don't think there's a question there. I don't really, (laughs) if I was in George R. R. Martin's world, I don't know that I would even want to have sex. If I was in George R. R. Martin's world, I would find a hole and crawl in it and just stay there forever. Please God, let it all pass. (laughs) It's a horrible, horrible world. I certainly wouldn't take my dick out for nothing. <laughs> Not for nothing. So true. Uh, Ian James Crone said, must say it's harder to get through my Sunday nights at work without the Duke and Duchess podcast. We've been, oh, we've been behind. Well, we Not this week. No, we've kind of changed our recording pattern, and so we were getting the podcast out usually like Saturday afternoon. Um, Ian's in London, I believe, or definitely in the UK. Um, and no, I'm sorry, Ian's from Texas. Forgive me, I had completely wrong. But we were getting it out uh, Saturday afternoon our time, but now it's been more like Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening our time. I want to get it out by Sunday evening is kind of is kind of my hope. But it's, you know, people have been used to one pattern and now we're kind of pushing it back a little bit. So not surprising. Um, R- Rodney at Tatted Code Monkey said, uh, he put a gif a- up there and said, me, when I realize the next week's chapters for the Duke and Duchess podcast. And it's, uh, who is that guy? Jonah Hill. Jonah, one of my favorite. Jonah gifts. Hill spazzing out, yeah. 
Absolutely. Gip is heavy in my rotation. And then uh, Brunhilde Brunhilde said uh, another another uh, gif of a beating heart and said, how I felt when the Duchess says they're catet, their destinies are tied together. Yes, someone heard it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. And then we have Michael Cruisenberry, who is at Cruisenberry underscore M. I'm going to spell that out. C-R-U-S-I-N-B-E-R-R-Y underscore M. Said, new listener, but I love the podcast. My theory on Florian's story is the shaper who stole the moon is Jax. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, now and now in this, you know, through this section, it seems much more obvious. Um He's the one who started as the main enemy of Lanre and Salitos during the Creation War, um, mentioned by Scarpy. Mm-hmm. He says the house that the Jacks that Jacks built is the world of the Fae, mm. poorly built but magnificent. That I like. Oh, I like that. I like that, and things don't always quite seem to work or make sense. Right. Oh, I like that, and that makes totally makes total sense. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elliot Cosm uh, at Buddy Reads, you know, saying, hey, I'm almost done with the book. And he's kind of been caught up. He was out for a little while. He had an injury um, from working out, which I thought was hilarious because he said, kids, it's a trap. It's a trappy trap, trap, trap. Don't work out. (laughs) (laughs) But he's backing up and we're glad we're glad he's feeling better. So good for Elliot to be back back into the swing of things. And so that is the interaction from our glorious and outstanding listeners whom we love. I mean, I might be biased, but I think our listeners are the funniest. They're pretty funny. Yes. We get some good stuff and some good observations. Like I hadn't picked up, I don't think I would have picked up on the idea of the house that Jack's found being the world of Fayin. I have never picked up on that, but I really think there's something there. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a, a, I think it's a better observation than what I came up with, you know. So we we collectively are better than any of us individually. So so we make a community, and we like that. We like that. Are you crinkling up your juice box on my podcast? I'm trying to make it a little more hardcore. It would be really badass if you belched right now. <laughs> that was all right. That was okay. So, do you have anything else for the podcast? I think we're going out. And I, I think we're done, man. Wow. Mm. So, thank you for listening to another glorious episode. Question mark of the Duke and Touches podcast. Where can they mush find mouth, us? Mushmouth notwithstanding. That was the best part of the show. <laughs> Some people just like to watch the world burn <laughs> while eating a fucking pudding pop. Is it too goddamn much to ask? You just keep ruining my my head cast, my head cannon by throwing out John Goodman and Mushmouth and you just you need to stay out of that. <laughs> okay. I'm fucking with something sacred. Yes. Head cannon is not to be played with. It's not. Where can they find us? I don't know. I don't know. I've just Stop. completely Why? disarmed you at Why? this point. 
doing this to me. We can be found at thedukeanduchesspodcast.com. Also on Facebook at, at the Duke and Duchess and on Twitter at the DND Podcast. And that's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. Good night, everyone. No, no, no. We ain't, we ain't done yet. We that's... didn't ask for reviews. Please review us. <laughs> if you want to. I mean, you don't have to. If you want to. If you made it all the way here, you're committed. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> you probably already reviewed us. Or you're my mom. Hi, mom. No. I'm just God. kidding. My mom doesn't listen to this podcast. Please, God. <laughs> I've said way too many things. (laughs) All right. Good night. Good night.